Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and today we will conclude this chapter. And as you find that, and before we read it, I want to—I thought it was appropriate this morning to give you just a thorough review of this chapter, uh, because we're about to leave this chapter, move to something different, a little different, but I want to give you a thorough review, and maybe you've missed some weeks for different reasons, and maybe this can help catch you up, and so I hope you will just listen in, dial in here early on in the sermon as I give you this review of Romans chapter 9. And I think to do that, you've got to go back and start in the Old Testament. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abraham and made a promise to him and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a multitude of descendants, and your, your people will be a blessing to all nations. Abraham had a son. His son's name was Isaac. And God came and made the same promise to Isaac. Then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and God came to Jacob and made the very same promise. Your people will be a blessing, will be a nation, and will bless all nations. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so all these people from this lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we call them the Israelites, right? Or the Hebrews or the the Jewish uh, people. So the story of the Old Testament is really God working through the people of Israel to bring about his plan of redemption for his people. And so then later on we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes along and he comes from the very same lineage as Jacob. Of course Jesus came and then after him the Apostle Paul came. Paul was also of the same Jewish descent. And so in Romans chapter 9, as we begin the chapter, Paul is struggling. And his struggle is he desires that the people of Israel would be saved. We're going to see that again, by the way, in chapter 10. But he has this desire that his people would be saved. And so the question early on in Romans 9 is, if they're God's people, and yet many of them have rejected God, specifically rejected Christ because they were a part of the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, If those people who are supposed to be God's people have rejected Jesus, God's very own son, then has God's word failed? And Paul says in Romans 9, no way. Of course not. God cannot fail and he will not fail. And he makes a distinction here that's very important. He makes a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. And he says that just because someone is a descendant of Jacob, of Israel, does not mean they are necessarily one of God's people. As a matter of fact, no one is a Christian simply because they've been born into the right family, or a physical family. Rather, to be a Christian, one must be born again spiritually into God's family. And so, Paul takes this opportunity in Romans 9 to teach this mind-blowing truth that sometimes is hard to understand or even accept. But what he teaches us is this, that the decisive cause of every Christian's salvation is that they were chosen by God. And we call this doctrine unconditional election. We saw it back in chapter 8 of Romans. Over in chapter 8, in verse 30, excuse me, verse 29, where it says, those he foreknew he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. And in verse 30 he says, 
Those whom he did predestine, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so if you're following along in Romans 9, the question might arise, why did God elect certain people to salvation? Did God, in his omniscience, look forward into the future and see who would believe in Christ and then choose those people? Paul knew that's probably what somebody's thinking. God probably just looked to the future and thought, that that guy will believe, that lady will believe, so I will choose them. And Paul says, that's not right. If God did that, then our, our salvation would be, we'd be based decisively on our faith when we've already seen our salvation is based decisively on God's will. Paul responds bluntly to this objection by telling us that God accepted Jacob and rejected Esau before they were even born. Before Jacob or Esau, these twins, before either one had a chance to do anything good or bad, God accepted one and rejected the other. So God's election is not based on any foreseen faith. It's holy of his grace, and it is unconditional. Someone, someone might say, well, that doesn't sound fair either. That doesn't sound fair, and I argued with you last week, the last two weeks, I've argued, we don't want God to be fair. If God were fair, we would all be condemned. We want God to be, as we sang this morning, we want God to be gracious that undeserved gift of Jesus. We want God to be merciful and patient and kind and long-suffering. We don't want him to be fair because we would get eternal damnation. So Paul goes on in Romans 9, and he, he kind of, again, comes back with another objection or answer to an objection, and he gives two examples of the Old Testament. One is Moses, and he says, God told Moses, Moses, I'm going to have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And Moses was an example of someone that God had compassion on and used for his glory. And then he contrasts Moses, does Paul in Romans 9, by saying Pharaoh is an example of someone God hardened and God rejected. And so if you're reading Romans 9 and you're still reading it going, I don't like this, I don't agree with this. God, what are you talking about? This isn't fair, this isn't right. Look at Romans 9, verse 18. Therefore, hath he, he is God, mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Again, some might still be rejecting this teaching, and Paul asserts in those next verses that God is the potter and we are the clay. God is sovereign and can do with his creation as he wills. As Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God does all these things for his glory and to show his mercy to undeserving sinners like me and like you. The result for us to know that apart, is that apart from election and the calling of God, we would never be saved. You would never choose him if he did not choose you. You would never call on him if he did not effectually call on you. As, Matthew, as Jesus said to Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called. That's the external, the general call, but few are chosen. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, who will come to him? He says in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then again in John 6, 44, Jesus said again decisively, no one comes to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws and calls him. We would never repent and believe. You would have never, Christian, you would have never repented, you would have never believed if God didn't bring you from spiritual death to life. Whosoever will can be saved, but they won't be unless God does the saving. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Hang with me on this next part. This is a thoroughly biblical doctrine. This is a theologically God-centered doctrine. This is a Christologically Christ-exalting doctrine. This is a soteriologically salvation-assuring doctrine. This is a practically humbling doctrine. This is a doxologically praiseworthy doctrine. This is a missiologically evangelistic doctrine. The doctrine of God's unconditional election is a precious doctrine. If you're in Romans 9, verse 24, say word. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been a Sodom and been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We're going to see, as we build on the review I just gave you of Romans 9, we're going to see God's call for all people uh, to be included in His people is based on His call. We've already talked about the Israelites, and now we see here in verse 24, the Gentiles. So, simply put, everyone who's not a part of Israel is a Gentile. And you probably know this, you've probably read this and studied this, especially in this first century, in your Bible as you read it, there's tension between the people of Israel and the Gentiles. There are, there are issues, even some of God's own people, even some of the disciples have these debates and serious councils and meetings because of mistreatment of some of the Jews and Gentiles. And so in verse 24, Paul says, not only does God call people from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. It reminds me of the, 
the theme verse of Romans. You remember what the theme verse was I gave you way back in January? I'm sure you remember. Um, it's only been a few months ago. Romans 1.16. There it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. And so he gives us this picture that God's coming not only to call the Jews, but the Gentiles. And so if you look at verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9, he's going to quote there from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Uh, this is a very simplified version of Hosea, but let me give it to you. Hosea was a prophet. God told him to marry this lady. Her name was Gomer. Don't ask why. He marries her. Um, they have a family. Um, she becomes unfaithful and, and you know, runs off basically in adultery. And later on, he goes back and, and brings her back in. It's a story of how Israel was unfaithful to God, and yet God would bring them back in. A very real story because not long after that, the people of Israel would be taken captive by the Assyrians and to, as judgment over their sin and their unfaithfulness. And so the point of what happened in Hosea and the point of here is that though the God's people were faithless, God remained faithful. Like a loving spouse whose spouse had cheated on them, he brought them back and restored them. And in the midst of that teaching from Hosea, Way back in the Old Testament, we see something amazing where he says in verse 25, those who were not my people, God says, I will now call them my people. Those who are not my beloved, I will call them my beloved. Again, God's people are not just those who have a certain ancestry. And the radical conclusion in Paul's day was that being a child of Abraham or a child of Israel does not guarantee inclusion in the true people of God. As I studied this this week, um, I was actually uh, walking down the sidewalk in, in the town where we live, walking down the sidewalk and thinking about this part of the sermon, and something else jumped into my mind about God saving Jews and Gentiles. And what, what popped in my mind and what I began to meditate on, I want to share with you now, I want to share with you what the world, the phrase the world, means in the book of John. In John 1.29, we see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is out there doing his ministry. Jesus begins to walk up. And you've heard this before. He looks and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to talk to you about that for a moment. We understand, I think we do, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice lambs for the atonement of sin, for forgiveness of sin. They would kill the, the animal uh, for, for that forgiveness. And so when we say that Jesus takes away sin, does that mean Jesus completely forgives our sin? The answer is yes, I believe. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Just as a lamb was slaughtered in the Old Testament, John the Baptist is saying Jesus will pour out his blood for the actual forgiveness of people's sin. And here's why I want to tell you this. A couple of reasons. One reason is, I want you to understand, Jesus did not die just to make salvation maybe possible. Jesus died to actually procure 
salvation. When Jesus died, he actually accomplished your salvation. He didn't leave it like hanging out there. Not one drop of his blood was spilled in vain. When he said, it is finished, he meant it, didn't he? It is finished. The lamb will receive the reward of his suffering, which is the bride, his church. And so John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, and notice the last phrase, of the world. When he, gave that, when he said this phrase here, does that mean that Jesus forgave the sin of every person in the world? The answer has to be no, right? If Jesus on the cross forgave the sin of every person in the world then who would be saved? Every person in the world. That's called universalism, and we reject that teaching. We know everyone is not going to be saved. Everyone has not been saved. So if he did not mean that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sin for every person who ever existed, then what did he mean when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the reason I'm giving you this is because it goes so plainly with Romans 9. When he says, of the world in the book of John, he's saying, no longer is God just for the Jews. Now God is for the Gentiles as well. Now this Messiah, who is a Jewish Messiah, who has now come, now will also forgive the sins of the world. So that people from all over the world can be saved through him. And in the first century, this was a radical idea. A radical idea. Many of them thought that only those who were from the lineage of Jacob would be loved by God, and he proves them wrong. And so two chapters later, John quotes Jesus and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Meaning that whoever believes in him, that that all kinds of people from all different nations and all different groups will be saved. Does John 3.16 mean that every person in the world has been chosen, called, and saved by God? No. It does not mean that God loves every person or accepts every person in the exact same way. The idea of John 3.16 is that not only does God love Israel, but His love extends further. People in Europe can be saved. People in Africa can be saved. People in Asia can be saved. And thank the Lord one day, people in America, as the word made its way here, can be saved. People from all over the world, whoever believes in him, can be saved. And so then we get to Revelation 5, 9, and it's this picture of the, the future, a future event. And look at it there. It says, by your blood... You ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. God's love extended past his people to a new people, a spiritual Israel, which includes us. So you might be reading that and think, as we transition now, you might be reading that and think, well, does that mean God thinks less of Israel? Well, in verses 27 through 29, it reminds us that God has not forgotten Israel. He, he confirms in those three verses that 
they've been called, and he does that through the prophet Isaiah. If you'll glance there at verses 27 through 29, he talks about how not only are some Gentiles saved, but also some Jews are now saved. And, and though there are many of them, a remnant of them will be saved. Again, God is faithful to his people, even though they are faithless. How many times in the Old Testament does, does God's people reject him or deny him or become hard-hearted or stiff-necked? It's constant. If you read the Old Testament, they're constantly turning their back on God. And yet, after he judges them and chastens them, what does he do? He restores them. God is faithful, though his people be faithless. And God always preserves a remnant. Verse 29 says that the Lord has left a offspring, a seed. And if God had not left a seed, if God had not intervened and just left his people alone, they would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know what happened there, right? Total destruction. And so the main point of Romans chapter 9 is that God is sovereign over salvation. But as we get to verse 30, And into chapter 10, we're going to see the role of human response in salvation. We've talked a lot the last few weeks about the sovereignty of God. And I want you to know, I think you clearly know from hearing me preach the last three weeks, where I stand on that. I believe God is absolutely sovereign in all things. But we also must see in Scripture that there's a human responsibility as well. These things are not separate. They actually go together. It's like a coin It's one coin with two sides, right? Charles Spurgeon was asked one time, how do you you, um, reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to believe in Christ? And Spurgeon said, cleverly, he said, I don't reconcile friends. (laughs) They already go together. They don't need to be reconciled. They work together. And so there's a temptation, and I think this, by the way, is true in many Christians and most churches, to either emphasize the sovereignty of God and neglect the responsibility of man, or to neglect the responsibility of man and overemphasize uh, the other one. And that's not what we want to do. A biblical view holds firmly to God's sovereignty in all things, and yet calls people to respond to Christ. So let's look at verse 30. Only a couple verses left in Romans 9. And in verse 30, he talks about these Gentiles, and he talks about them attaining the righteousness of God for salvation. But notice, how did they find it? It says there, they were not even looking for it. So they found something they weren't even looking for. It made me wonder, did these Gentiles have a strong faith? That's not the answer. Did, were they good people? That's not the right answer. Did they come from the right family? No. They must have had receptive hearts? No. They must have had a powerful free will? No. As John 1.13 says, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And through the pursuing of God in their lives, in verse 30, they gain this righteousness by responding to God in faith. Verse 31 The Gentiles who weren't looking found Christ. And now Israel is pursuing through the law. And so the people of Israel did not see Christ, did not find Christ because they were doing other things. They were outside the the 
people of God because they were trying to focus on obeying the law and doing good works. I think there are a lot of people in today's world in the Bible Belt, in our communities, there are a lot of people who wake up every Sunday and go to church who are trying to get to heaven by being a good person. And they think, I'm better than my neighbor. I go to church fairly often. I'm a pretty good person. I've never been in any bad trouble. I must be going to heaven, right? That's what these... Israelites thought in a sense. I'll just obey the law. I'm from the right family. I'll obey the law and I'll be right with God. And when you do that, verse 32 and 33 says, look at verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have, they're tripping. <laughs> they have tripped over the stone. They think there's something in them Listen, this might be somebody that's listening this morning. If you think you're saved because of something in you or something that you've done, you must see clearly that's wrong. And if you do that, it doesn't matter if you're a first century Jew or a 21st century Gentile, you are stripping over the stumbling stone. Our final verse of Romans 9 is verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stumbling stone is a person, isn't he? The stone is a person here, isn't it? He's one who must be believed in, and yet he offends many. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, but to Jews he is a stumbling block. Jesus Christ is the foundation stone. He's the one who fully accomplished your salvation, the salvation of sinners by His substitutionary death and undeniable resurrection. If you are rejecting Jesus this morning, then you are stumbling. You are tripping. If you're attempting to be right with God by your church attendance, you're stumbling over Jesus. If you're attempting to be right with God by your, by your good works, you're stumbling over the stone. To deny Him, to reject Him, to not believe in Him is to stumble. The stone of Romans 9 either saves or causes to stumble. But as we know this morning, our only hope for the forgiveness of sin, our only hope for a relationship with God and eternal life is to believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that our only hope? And maybe someone's listening this morning who, who realizes for the first time that they're stumbling and they're not truly saved. Go to Christ even now. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. Step off the shifting sand and step on to the solid rock. Turn your eyes from the world and gaze on Jesus, the light of the world. Enter the door of the good shepherd, abide in the true vine, follow the way, receive the truth, embrace the life. 
drink freely of the living water, taste of the bread of life. Submit to the King of kings, surrender to the Lord of lords, bowing in your heart and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Every one of us in this place today needs to rest the hopes of our soul on the Lamb of God. And if we do that, we will never be put to shame. Let's pray.